0: Lord Jesus, we want to bow before you today and say thank you that you are our Messiah. You are Emmanuel, God with us. You are Lord of all. And Lord Jesus, as we open your word this morning to a passage that says so much about you, that is centered on you, would you open our eyes afresh to the wonder of who you are, We pray for it's in your beautiful name we ask Jesus. Amen. It Could Happen to You was the name of a movie released in 1994 starring Nicolas Cage and Bridget Fonda. It was a story of Charlie, a New York cop who who was served in a diner uh, where uh, this waitress Yvonne was uh, serving him. And didn't have money for a tip, and so he said to her, I'll give you a choice, I'll either come back tomorrow and give you a double tip, or I'll split with you the winnings that I make in the New York lottery this Saturday night. And so she decided that she would go for the, the lottery. And so in the movie, he, uh, he wins the New York lottery that night, and he splits the money with her, and The movie goes and they end up falling in love and, you know, typical American movie. What's fascinating is this 1994 movie is actually based, loosely based, on a real life story that happened 10 years before. In 1984, uh, it was a New York cop by the name of Robert Cunningham and he uh, was eating at Sal's Pizzeria. And uh, he made a joke with uh, Chris, uh, Phyllis. Sorry, Phyllis was the waitress serving him. And he made a joke. He had money on him, but he's a New York cop. He was married, father of four, granddad of three little kids. And, um, and he just made a joke with Phyllis and said, I'll tell you what, um, how, what if I don't give you a tip now and I, and I split the lottery with you if I win on Saturday night? Um, and this is the true story. And she said, okay, I'll go with that. Uh, And they laughed and joked, and he headed off. And that Saturday night, he won the New York lottery and won $6 million. And so Robert Cunningham, at that point, faced a choice. He wasn't on a high salary as a typical beat cop in the New York Police Department. But he faced a choice. What would he do? Would he follow through on his promise? And remarkably, Robert Cunningham did. And he went into the pizzeria that next week, and he walked up to Phyllis the waitress And he gave her the biggest tip she had ever received in her life of $3 million. Her life was transformed by a very remarkable promise. We are in this series called Transformed, where we are walking through the last hours of Jesus' life as portrayed in John's Gospel, the fourth Gospel or biography in the New Testament. And John is different to the other three Gospels in that in the second half of his story about Jesus, he zeroes in on the final hours, the last 24-hour period leading up to the death of Jesus and then Jesus' subsequent resurrection. And so he zeroes in on Jesus' final words and last deeds and then what his death and resurrection accomplishes for us and how that all transforms us. And so we've looked so far in John 13 at how we're transformed by Jesus' humility and becoming a slave and washing us and inviting us to follow his example, and then last week, we looked at what it means to be transformed by this incredible love that Jesus has, even in our worst. And this morning now we come into John chapter 14. So if you've got a Bible uh, with you, uh, either paper or phone or whatever it is, I'd love you to turn the app on or open up the pages to John chapter 14. And I want to look with you today at what it means to be transformed by the promises of Jesus. Because in verses 1 to 14 of John 14, this passage we're going to look at, and it would be really cool if you can have a look at it with me. It makes it so much more helpful. What we're going to see is Jesus makes four outrageous promises, not just one that Robert Cunningham made, but in fact four outrageous promises. And the key question here is not so much will Jesus fulfill his promise, which is really the question that Phyllis the waitress would have had about this New York cop. The question is more than just, will Jesus fulfill his promise? Really, the question is, can Jesus actually fulfill his promise? Because what we're going to see is Jesus makes four promises that are utterly outrageous and beyond anything any of us would ever promise to anyone else in life. And so I want us to examine these promises together. So the story is John 14, and it begins in verse 1 like this. Have a look if you've got it open there with you. Jesus says to his followers, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. So Jesus is in this meal. He's sitting with his 12 closest followers that are now down to 11 because Judas Iscariot has now left the building Uh, because he's gone to betray Jesus just as Jesus knew and predicted. So there's 11 of them left, and Jesus knows that these guys are now deeply, deeply troubled. It's a very emotive word that John uses here. It's the same word that was just used of Jesus in the previous chapter when Jesus was going to describe the betrayer and he was deeply moved and troubled in his heart. And now these closest followers are, and it's not a surprise really. Jesus has just told them he's about to be betrayed by one of them. He's just told them that their pseudo leader Peter is going to deny him three times before the evening is out. He's just told them he's leaving them and taking off. So they're like, oh my goodness, what is happening? And so Jesus speaks to them in this moment of deep inner turmoil and emotional trouble that they're feeling. And what he says to them is, believe in God and believe in me. Now the NIV, which is the translation I prefer to use, um, actually renders the first half of that as a statement rather than a command. So the NIV says in 14 verse one, you believe in God as a statement and then Believe in me also as a command. But there's a footnote that says it could be rendered as two commands. And English translations vary, but I think the footnote is right. Um, The word can be translated two different ways, and it's not apparent in the word itself which way to go. But I think Jesus is giving two commands here, because they're struggling to believe in God at this point. They are deeply troubled. Jesus is leaving. One of them's betraying. Peter's denying. Their whole world's falling apart. They're not trusting in anything right now. And so Jesus speaks into that moment of deep turmoil and says, I know you're troubled, but have faith in God and have faith in me. And then on the basis of that, he gives them these four amazing promises. The first one is in verses two to four. He says, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. So the first outrageous promise Jesus makes is the promise of eternity. He talks about his father's house and he says, I am going to prepare a place for you in my father's house. Now, the father's house is heaven. That is where God resides and lives, and Jesus is promising his closest followers a place in heaven with the Father. This is the way that the, 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 the scriptures had used in the Old Testament at times. The best-known example is from the, the most well-known psalm, David in Psalm 23, with these words, "'Surely your good, loyal love will follow me all the days of my life.'" And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's an expectation of an eternity with God. That's what David celebrates in the psalm. And that's what Jesus is promising here. So his first promise is, I will prepare the way. I will prepare a place for you. I'm promising you eternity in my father's house. You don't need to be troubled. Now that's an outrageous promise. But there's a few pieces to this that we need to understand. First he says, verse 2, My father's house has many rooms. Now, if you grew up with a King James version of the Bible, you would be familiar with the words, my father's house has many mansions. And in fact, there's been multiple songs and hymns through the centuries built on this idea, and I don't want to burst your mansion bubble if that's what you're hoping for, but the King James is wrong. All right? It is not a mansion. It is a room. Jesus here is not describing the extravagance of the Father's house. The the, the word simply means a dwelling place. And the emphasis is not on the extravagance of heaven. The emphasis Jesus is making is that there's many rooms. There's multiple space for anyone who wants to come through Jesus to the Father. He's saying heaven's massive. The imagery is not mansions all over the place. The imagery is of a villa in the ancient world where the patriarch and matriarch lived. And when their kids married, their daughters would leave the family home and join the homes of their husbands, but their sons would remain in the house. And when they married, their new wives would come and live in the family home, and they would add another room. They'd add another wing, if you like, into this growing villa, this home where the family would all gather and live together. And that's the idea that Jesus is giving. The house of my father, heaven, is where we will gather, and I'm promising you that, and, it, and it, there's room for anyone who will come. There's many rooms. And he says here in, uh, in verses 2 and 3, that if it were not so, what I have told you, I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place, I will come back. Now, I've always misunderstood what Jesus said. I thought what Jesus is saying here, this is what I've always thought really until this week, um, that Jesus is saying, there's two steps. I am going to go. And then when I get there, I'm preparing heaven for you. So I thought Jesus was saying, there's a two-step thing. So I'm going to go to heaven, that's step one. And then step two, I'm preparing a place for you. In fact, I've heard people say it this way: God spent six days creating the entire universe, and now He's spent two thousand years getting heaven ready for us. Imagine how awesome heaven's going to be! Now that sounds wonderful, but that's actually not what Jesus is saying at all. Um, for one thing, that misrepresents the power and greatness of God. Because God didn't have to create the world in six days. God could have created it in one moment with one word and everything could be. God chose six days because he wanted to create a seven-day rhythm for his creatures, human beings. And so God is not needing to take more time to make heaven wonderful. That, that misrepresents God. But it also misrepresents, misrepresents what Jesus is saying here. This is not a two-step thing. This is a one-step. Jesus is saying, I am going to prepare a place for you. And it's basically, I wonder if it would be better to be translated this way, as I'm going, I'm preparing a place for you. See, when Jesus talks about his going in John's gospel, he's using that word in a, in a quite a specific way. He's talking about departing to be with the Father, but the, the road to, to going to the Father, to ascending back to heaven, is via the cross. So when Jesus talks about I am going, he is talking about going to the cross and to the tomb and then back to the Father. It's his death, resurrection and ascension back to heaven. And when he says here, I'm going to prepare a place for you, he is saying, I'm going to the cross to die for your sins, to rise again from the dead and to ascend back back to the Father. And that's how he's preparing a place for you and I. He's not making the destination better. The destination is already awesome because it's my Father's house. He's making the road to that destination. That's what he's preparing for us. By going to the cross and rising again and then ascending to the Father, he is creating the pathway, the roadway to get to my Father's house. That's what he's saying. It's in going to the cross, to the tomb, back to heaven. It's one step. He's creating the way to my Father's house because you and I have no chance of getting to the Father by ourselves. We can never ascend to the hill of God. We can never spend eternity in the presence of a holy God as sinful people by ourselves. We need someone to create the pathway for us and that's what Jesus is saying. He's not preparing the destination. He's preparing the road. And notice how relational this is. Heaven isn't awesome because God spent 2,000 years creating it, as though he needed that amount of time. And heaven isn't awesome because it's mansions everywhere and and, and, and extravagance and exotic things. Heaven is awesome because that's where the Father is. God is what makes heaven, heaven. It's my Father's house. Look at how Jesus terms it at the end of verse 3. I will come back and I will take you... To be with me, that where I am, that you may also be where I am. What's going to make heaven amazing is that the Father will be there, and the Son will be there, and the Spirit will be there, and we will live forever with God. Who cares about mansions? It's God. And Jesus says, This is what I'm promising you. Your heart's troubled. Jesus says to his followers, trust me, trust the Father. I'm promising you forever, and I'm making the way to get there. Second promise then comes in verses 5 to 7. Verse 4, just to jump back there, Jesus said, you know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, I love Thomas in the Gospel of John. He's awesome, one of the uh, 12. Thomas says to him, "Uh, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? I love that. Jesus says, so you know where I'm going and you know how how I'm going to make the way there. You know the destination and the road. And Thomas goes, "Um, Lord, I don't know the destination or the road. I'm completely confused. I don't know what you're talking about. Which is great honesty. And very reassuring, I think, for you and I a lot of the time. So Jesus responds in verse 6 with incredibly famous words. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. The second outrageous promise that Jesus makes is exclusivity. It's the promise of exclusivity. He has just promised eternity and said, I am preparing the way to get to my Father's house, and now he turns around and promises this is the only way. There's no other way to get to my father's house. And he says that in verse 6 in a couple of ways. One, he makes this massive claim in the first half of the verse. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. This is one of seven what are called the I am statements in John's gospel. This is a core part of what John is trying to get us to understand about who Jesus is. So back in chapter 6, Jesus has said, I am the bread of life. Chapter 8, I am the light of the world. Chapter 10, I am the gate for the sheep and the shepherd for the sheep. After raising Lazarus from the dead, I am the resurrection and the life. Now I am the way, the truth, and the life. In the next chapter, I am the true vine. Seven claims all built on that phrase, I am, which is at the heart of God's name, Yahweh, in the Old Testament. God is the great I am. Jesus is now saying, I am. It's a claim to being God. And notice the common word in each of these claims the tiny, simple little word, the. He's saying, I am the good shepherd. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, that life. Not "ah." He's not saying, I am a way. I am a truth. I am a shepherd. I am a light, as though there's multiple lights, there's multiple options, there's multiple shepherds, there's multiple ways. Jesus is saying, no, 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 it's me. I am the. I am the way to God. I am the epitome of all truth. I am the one and only source of life. Now, you know as well as I do, that's a pretty extravagant claim, especially in our world today. This photo popped up on my Facebook feed for some reason this week. And I thought, is it God cool? Or someone? Anyway, I wonder how many of you have tried that. I wonder how many of you would like to try that this afternoon. I could print a sign for you if you'd like to go to Botany and just hang out at the town centre or Hastings, those of you watching there, Kiora, downtown Hastings, at Atonga Street or something, stand there with a sign. How do you think you'd get on See, the exclusive claims of Jesus rub utterly the wrong way in the world we live in today. We live in a pluralistic world, in a relativistic world, where there is no real truth, everything's relative, all religions are great, they all lead to God, they've all got some measure of truth, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. And Jesus comes along and says, no. I am the way." implying there is no other way. I am the truth. There is no other truth outside of the revelation of Jesus. I am the life. There's no other way to reach my father's house except through trusting in me. I love how one commentator, Edward Clink, unpacks this amazing uh, promise that Jesus makes here. He says, Jesus destroys the wall that divides humanity from God. That's why he's the way. Jesus denies the falsehood that distorts humanity in relation to God. That's why he's the truth. And Jesus defeats the last and greatest enemy of humanity, which is death. That's why he's the life. I love this phrase. He, Jesus, is the totality of what God has done, is doing, and will do. And Jesus then underlines that by the second phrase in verse 6 No one comes to the Father except through me. I mean, talk about uh, ticking a lot of people off in our world today. Because what Jesus is saying is, you don't get to the Father via Muhammad, you don't get to the Father via Confucius, you don't get to the Father via Buddha, you don't get to the Father via atheistic humanism. You only get to the Father through me. Now that is an outrageous promise, isn't it? But that's what Jesus has said. So his earliest followers, those same men sitting in that upper room, weeks later, Peter will say this to the religious leaders, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we can be saved. Jesus is claiming that he and he alone makes it possible for us as sinful human beings to have a relationship with God. That is outrageously exclusive. Can I suggest to you that it's also radically inclusive? See, if this isn't true, if Jesus isn't the only way, if there are some other paths to God, if God is going to open heaven to sincere Muslims or people that have been kind to animals and given to charity or to to, to Buddhists who had no other idea. If, if, If God is going to open heaven in other ways apart from Jesus, why did Jesus die? What a waste of time. How foolish it was for Jesus to go to the cross. Unless he is the only way and that was the only way to open the Father's house and make a place for you and me. But by doing that, Jesus is not only radically exclusive by saying, I am the only way. He is radically inclusive because that way is now available to anyone. Anyone who chooses to trust in Jesus can come. Anyone who puts their faith in Jesus be in the Father's house forever and ever. See, the other religious systems of the world that Jesus is, by implication, rejecting here, they're elitist. You have to be a special kind of person. You have to have achieved the pillars or obeyed the commands or, or done everything that needs to be done. And so if you haven't made it, if you're not good enough, if you're not perfect enough, if you're not religious enough, you don't make it. It's only Jesus who turns around and says, you can't make it. You're not religious enough. You're not good enough. You're not perfect enough. But I am, so I'll make a way. And now you don't have to do anything to measure up except trust me. Which means it's radically exclusive, but it's radically inclusive because anyone in mankind can be saved. But good night. What an outrageous promise. The third promise then comes, verses 8 to 11. Again, verse 7 Jesus has said, You'll know my Father as well from now on. You know him and have seen him. Now it's Philip's turn to put his hand up in verse 8. Philip says, um, Sorry, Lord, show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us. I almost wonder if Jesus sighed at this point, like, Oh, you're kidding me. <laughs> Are you serious? Jesus answers, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been with you, among you this long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me? The words I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority. Rather, it's the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say, I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Outrageous promise number three is equality. Jesus makes this incredible statement in verse 9, that if you don't pause long enough, you miss how audacious this is. If you have seen me, Philip, you've seen the Father. If you've spent any time with me, You've spent time with God. If you've listened to me, you've heard God. If you've watched me perform miracles, you've seen the power of God. If you've had a meal with me, Philip, you've had a meal with God. You've seen me, you've seen God. I'm God. That's what Jesus is saying. This is the statement, the claim of John's gospel all the way through. John began his gospel this way. The final verse of his incredible introduction comes in verse 18 of John 1, where he says, No one has ever seen God, the Father, But the one and only Son, the unique Son, Jesus, look at this next phrase, who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father, he, the Son, who is himself God, has made God known. That's an outstanding statement about who Jesus is. Jesus made the same claim in John 10. He says to his opponents, the works that I do, the miracles in my Father's name testify about me, but you don't believe me because you're not part of my sheep. But he says, anyone who does believe in my sheep, no one will snatch my sheep out of my hands, and no one will snatch my sheep out of my Father's hands, because, he says, verse 30, I and the Father are one. Now, liberal scholars and people who want to deny the deity of Jesus take that claim and say, well, Jesus isn't claiming deity, he's claiming that they are one in purpose, one in mission, something like that. But that's not how he was understood. His opponents pick up stones to stone him. And Jesus says, wait a minute, you're going to stone me for my miracles. And they say in verse 33, we are not stoning you for any good work you've done, but for blasphemy because you are mere man claim to be God. His opponents knew exactly what Jesus was saying when he said, I and the Father, are one. And the New Testament picks up this truth time and time again. Paul will write to the Philippians about Jesus being in very nature God. Colossians chapter 1, he says, The Son is the visible image of the invisible God. Or Colossians 2, in Christ, all of the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. In other words, he's fully God in human flesh. Hebrews 1 begins, The Son is the radiance of the God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Now, when you stop and think about father-son relationships, this is unique. I'm the father of three boys. None of them are an exact representation of me. They're a somewhat representation of me, but mixed in with a representation, which is much better for them, of their mother and some unique traits are from who they are. In fact, recently, the alta, high school youth had a social night, just a fun evening together, that had a theme around the letter B. And people, the, the youth could dress up with anything starting with the letter B. So Harrison, my oldest, he's 20, he went as Brad. And he did a mask, printed out a mask of my face that he put on, and he grabbed some of my clothes, because I was in Nepal. And I've been told by a number of people at that youth night, it was very scary. Because he was nailing my mannerisms and he was in my clothes and he had my mask. But isn't it interesting, he's a unique individual. He's my son and there's a lot of commonality but he's not an exact representation of me. He needed a mask on to pretend to be me. Jesus doesn't need a mask on. He is a full and exact representation of God. Because He is, in very nature, God. All of the fullness of God dwells in him. And we're into the mystery of what theologians call the Trinity here. There is one God, but this God exists as three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Father is fully God. The Son, Jesus, is fully God. The Holy Spirit, who we'll meet next week, is fully God. But it's not three gods, it's one God. Now, I can't get my head around all of that, but that is very clearly what the Bible teaches. And that is what Jesus is claiming here. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And what's so important is this third outrageous promise is the foundation on which those earlier two promises are made. Jesus can only make the promise of eternity and the promise of exclusivity because of the promise of equality. They're all wrapped up in a package. But there's one final outrageous promise left in verses 12 to 14. Jesus says, Very truly, verse 12, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I've been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son and you may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. The third outrageous promise, and I'm sorry if you love alliteration, I ran out of e-words and went with an a-word of authority. But Jesus' final promise here is a promise of authority. Whatever you ask for in my name, I will do it. Now There's two phrases here in this little section we just need to unpack very quickly because they get misunderstood. The first little phrase is in verse 12. Jesus says in verse 12, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing and they'll do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. Now, there's many people who have grabbed that passage and said that means that we can and should be doing amazing miracles and even more amazing miracles than Jesus. That's what Jesus says. The problem is with that idea, I struggle to see anyone doing a better miracle than turning water into wine. I mean, that was, that was a very cool miracle. I would love it if someone could do that, but it's an amazing... You know, I've never heard of anyone who has claimed to, to outperform the miracle of walking on the water or feeding 5,000 men plus women and children from just a few loaves and fishes. How do you outdo the raising of Lazarus from the dead? That's not to rule out the miraculous. Because I think Jesus is still the same Jesus today, tomorrow, forever. And so I think the promise here is that whatever you ask for in my name, which means I think we can and should pray for the miraculous, and Jesus continues to do that in his will. But I don't think the greater works here is necessarily a promise that we're going to do even more amazing things than Jesus. Jesus has used this phrase one other time in John's Gospel earlier. He said this in John 5. For the Father loves the Son, again, that that relationship that's so key here. The Father loves the Son and shows him all that he does. Yes, and I will show him even greater works than these. Sorry, he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. So, in other words, the Father and the Son are working together. That's what Jesus claims there and here in chapter 14. And the time is coming, it's future, that the Father will do even greater works in and through the Son. So, what are these greater works? Well, Look at verse 21, the next verse. For, because, here comes the explanation. Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give. See, the greater works, Jesus is talking about the greatest miracle of all, which is giving eternal life to those who are spiritually dead. So this promise isn't necessarily ruling out the miraculous, because Jesus can and still does heal, and we can pray for that, which is the next couple of verses. But what Jesus is saying in verse 12 is that the greatest work we can be involved in with Jesus is proclaiming that life has been opened up by Jesus, that the way is open to the Father's house. See, that fits the whole context of this passage, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life And no one can come to the Father except through him, but anyone can come to the Father through him. And what's happening in verses 12 to 14 is Jesus is saying, and now now that you've accepted this and trusted in me, I'm inviting you to be part of this process of telling others that they can find the way, the truth, and the life and be in in, in a room in the Father's house as well. That's the greater work. And notice at the end of verse 12 how he finishes that sentence. uh, They will do even greater works than these because I am going to the Father. Remember, going to the Father means I am going to the cross and the tomb and the throne. And so you will do greater works. You will be involved in the greatest work of all because I am going to die and rise again and ascend to heaven. Because I'm opening up the way, you now get to be part of sharing that way with others. The second phrase that we can misunderstand is the incredible promise that he makes in verses 13 and 14. Whatever you ask for in my name, I will do it. And there have been countless people through the years who have ripped that out like a blank check from a checkbook and waved it in the air and said, hallelujah, praise God. Whatever I ask for in the name of Jesus, He's going to do. As though Jesus' name has now become this magic formula. Well, I'd like to win the New York lottery and get $6 million in the name of Jesus. Do I hear a hallelujah? I would love to have a new house in the name of Jesus. I would like to be healed of this illness that has hurt me for so many years in the name of Jesus. Is that what Jesus is saying? No, I don't think it is. See, he says it twice to underline the enormity and power of this incredible promise. I will do whatever you ask in my name, verse 13. Verse 14, he basically says it the same, way, same thing again in a different way. You may ask for anything in my name and I will do it. Double guarantee. But notice we ask in his name. That doesn't mean there's a magic formula, and if you tack in Jesus' name on the end of your prayer, like we were taught to do as kids, because that's how you meant to finish every prayer, if you tack in Jesus' name, that's the magic formula that opens the bank vaults of heaven. No, to pray in Jesus' name is to pray on the basis of the finished work of Jesus, where we can come now to the greatest God of all, almighty God, and we can come to him as our Father because of the relationship we have with Jesus. And when we pray in his name, which means in his will, we can ask for stuff. But notice the proviso that's sandwiched in the middle of these two incredible promises. So that the Father may be glorified in the Son. That's the, that's the will of God. So this is not a blank check. That I can come and pray, God, would you help me win the New York lottery this Saturday? In fact, Lord, I will give half of it to the church in Jesus' name. Now, is that going to bring glory to the Father? That's the question. In fact, we miss the whole point of this incredible final promise of Jesus when we make it about us, because that's what we want to do. We read it. We read words like that, and we go, "Oh, yes, please." But in the context of this, Jesus is saying, you're going to do greater works. I'm bringing you into my mission because I'm going to the Father, because I'm going to the cross and the tomb and the throne and I am making the roadway, the pathway to my Father's house. I'm inviting you now as my followers to get in on this and invite others to find life and and the way and truth in me. And in the context of talking to others about me and inviting them to find life in me, in that context, if you pray, if it's in the will of the Father and glorifies him, I will answer that prayer. This is not a blank check for, for us. and In fact, it's not even about us. It's about the glory of Jesus and his Father. That's what this is about. And it's about the incredible authority that Jesus has now earned because of who he is and because of what he's done. Four outrageous promises The promise of eternity, I'm going, and in my death and resurrection, I'm preparing the roadway to the Father's house. The promise of exclusivity, I am the only way, the only truth, and the only life. No one gets to the Father except through me. The promise of equality, and all of this is true, because if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And in light of that, the promise of authority as we share this message, whatever you ask for in my name, in my will, I will do. Now, just step back for a minute and look at those promises. The question for Phyllis the waitress about Robert Cunningham when he won the lottery was, will he keep his promise? The question for Jesus when he makes these kind of promises is, is can he keep these promises? These are outrageous. Every statement Jesus makes in this passage is insane. And if you don't believe me, Here's what I want to do. I want to take Jesus out of the scene for just 30 seconds and I want to put me, Brad, in here. I am preparing the way to the Father's house. I am the only way to God. I am the epitome of all truth. I am the one and only source of life and no one gets to God except through Brad. In fact, let me tell you today, If you've seen Brad, if you've had the privilege of having a coffee with me, if you've spent any time at all with me, you've seen God. And in fact, you know what? If you need anything as you share this wonderful good news about Brad, if you pray in Brad's name, you'll get it. See how bizarre that is? These claims of Jesus are either the greatest hoax in the history of the world or they're the best news ever. They, they can't be anything else and there is no room in between. By the way, if you've seen me, you haven't seen very much of God at all yet because I'm still in the process of being transformed. Here's the truth of this passage. The reliability of Jesus' outrageous promises ultimately rest on the reliability of Jesus and comparable character. For you to dare to trust in the promises of Jesus is a very big step of faith. Why Jesus said in verse 1, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in the Father and believe in me. Believe in me. And for us to believe in Jesus means we are believing some outrageous promises. But I believe we can trust his outrageous promises because his promises rest on his incomparable character. Reminds me of the famous words that C.S. Lewis wrote before I was even born. You will have, many of you, most of you will have heard them before. But I think these words sum up exactly the thrust of John chapter 14. C.S. Lewis, the author of the Narnia Chronicles, wrote these words. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. Quote, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. C.S. Lewis says, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or he is a madman, or he is something even worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit on him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But C.S. Lewis writes, let us not come up with any patronising nonsense about us being a great human teacher. He has not left that over to us, and he did not intend to. He makes four outrageous promises that are either fully true and we can trust him, or are the greatest hoax of history. I believe on the basis of his character. That I can trust his promises. And on the basis of that. And only that. I believe one day. I will be in my father's house. The band is going to come up. Just lead us in a couple of songs to close. One which we started slightly early. About Jesus as our cornerstone. And don't miss the power of these words that we are about to sing. Christ alone, cornerstone. He is the one and only. 600 years ago, a follower of Jesus by the name of Thomas Akempis wrote a book called The Imitation of Christ. And he wrote a beautiful set of words based on this passage of Scripture that I want to finish with this morning. 600 years on, these words still ring true. And a few of them may be very familiar to you. Here's what Thomas Akempis wrote. Follow me. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. I am the way, which you must follow. I am the truth which you must believe. I am the life for which you must hope. I am the inviolable way, the infallible truth, the never-ending life. I am the straightest way. I am the sovereign truth. I am life true, life blessed, life uncreated. It's nice.